stand now to honor the reading of God's Word. Our scripture this morning is John chapter 19, verses 1 through 16. John 19, verse 1. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man! When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law he ought to die, because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and an Aramaic Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. And let's pray once again. Father, thank you for giving us this portion of your holy, inspired, life-giving, all-sufficient, necessary, and clear word. Father, thank you for speaking to us, not leaving us without any revelation or communication of yourself and how we are to be saved. Father, we confess this morning that we need your help. We come to church this morning with pockets of unbelief, with doubts, with concerns, with fears, with unconfessed sin. Father, we pray that as the Word of God goes forth this morning that you would soften our hearts. We pray that you would give us the gift of understanding. Father, I pray that you would guard my lips very carefully this morning. I pray that all the things that I say would honor your great name and help the people that are here this morning. We pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen. According to the world death clock, yes, that is a thing, uh, every year on planet Earth, 56 million people die. Every month, 4.6 million people die. Every day, 153,000 people die. Every hour, 6,400 people die. Every minute, 106 people die. And every second, 1.8 people die. One, two, three, four, five, six seconds. And those six seconds, 6.8 people died around the world. People die all the time. 
and lots of people die. How many? In the history of the world, over 109 billion people have lived and died. Dave, with all the billions and billions of deaths in the history of the world, why do Christians focus so much on the death of one man? Why so much attention given to the death of Jesus? There are literally billions and billions of deaths. So why is there so much care, concern, and discussion given to the death of this one person 2,000 years ago? And that brings us to John 19, verses 1 to 16. This text contains uh, the second half of Jesus' trial under Pontius Pilate. We looked at the first half last week, and this week we'll look at the second half of this trial, and here we see that Christ is sentenced to death. In this trial, we learn what makes Christ's life unique, which is what makes his death so unique. Said another way, the identity of Christ explains or magnifies the death of Christ. That's still another way, you will not appreciate the death of this one man until you understand exactly who he is. Theologians often say that the person of Christ dramatically affects the work of Christ. So what does this text tell us about who Jesus was, which causes us to focus so much on his death? Well, it says a lot, and we're going to look at five aspects of the identity of Christ to help us appreciate this morning the death of Christ. So what are those five aspects? Well, the humble king died, the perfect man died, the sovereign son died, the coming judge died, and the Passover lamb died. So first, the humble king died. And again, we're jumping into the middle of this trial where Jesus is standing before Pontius Pilate, the governor of Rome, a very powerful individual. John 19, verse 1, then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. Now, the Roman flogging was very cruel and often fatal. The whip was a short wooden handle, and tied to it were several long, thick straps of leather, and in those straps were embedded um, often bone and, and rocks and sharp objects designed to rip the flesh off of the victim's back. Now, since Pilate still believed that Jesus was innocent, verses 4, 6, and 12, he probably hoped that a violent flogging at this moment would satisfy the Jewish passion for blood while sparing Christ's life. Now, more than likely, this was the first flogging. We read about the second flogging later. Uh, and ironically, this first flogging was minor compared to his second flogging, which we read about in the other Gospels. Verse 2 and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Now, apparently the Roman soldiers are aware of the fact that Jesus claims to be a king. And so they mock him by twisting together a crown of thorns and digging it into his forehead and then placing over his shoulders a purple robe. Purple was the color of royalty. This was probably a Roman cloak that was flung around his shoulders. The point is, is they are mocking this king. They are viciously making fun of him. Now, the mockery of Jesus, the king of kings and lord of lords, uh, is utterly outrageous. Imagine what would have happened for a moment with me a couple years ago when the queen was still alive. Imagine if a group of rogue 
British police officers somehow captured her, ripped off her clothes, beat her, whipped her, mocked her, put a crown of thorns on her head, and the whole time she's crying out in agony. What would have happened to those men? Well, I guarantee you if Queen Elizabeth's um, soldiers showed up, they would have shot first and asked questions later or released the canines on these awful criminals. Why? Because she's the queen of the British Empire, and she is worthy of dignity and respect and honor. How much more is Jesus Christ, the King and King, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, worthy of absolute and utter respect and honor and praise? Yet, these soldiers mock him. And the most amazing thing is, is he does nothing about it. Remember, he's God, fully God and fully man. He could have easily spoken the words just like that and evaporated these guys. They could have disintegrated. Remember, he spoke the universe into existence out of nothing. He has that kind of power. Or he could have called down instantly 10 million angels to utterly annihilate these cowardly, wicked Roman soldiers. But he didn't. Why? Why did Jesus subject himself to such suffering, humiliation, degradation? Why? Why? Because he is the humblest person in the history of the world. He is a humble king, and he came to suffer and die, not to defend himself. In this moment, he is the picture of perfect meekness, unwilling to lash out in anger. Again, why? Because he's humble. He humbled himself and submitted to gross humiliation because he loves us. He loves us. And his humility leads to our salvation. I love how J.C. Ryle, the 19th century Anglican bishop, describes this. The result of this, he says this, our Lord was clothed with a robe of shame and contempt that we might be clothed with a spotless garment of righteousness and stand in white robes before the throne of God. In humility, the King of kings and Lord of lords exchanged, shockingly, our filthy garments of sin for his royal robes of righteousness. Wow. Why? He's a humble king. He's a humble king. And furthermore, someday... He will place a crown, not of thorns, but a glorious crown on our heads. Why? Because amazingly, you and I, created beings, will rule the cosmos with him. Wow. All because of this incredible act of humility. So first, the humble king died. Wow. Who else died? Second, the perfect man died. Look with me at John 19, 4 to 6. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. 
When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. Now in this moment, Pilate dramatically presents Jesus to the Jews after being tortured by the soldiers. At this point, uh, Jesus' body is swollen, bruised, and bleeding. Then Pilate says, Behold the man. Now I think I sent a picture of this famous painting. There it is. You can kind of see it. It's a really famous painting. There it is. There's Pilate saying to the, the crowd that wants violence, behold the man. Echo homo in Latin. Pilate's words drip here with sarcasm. He's basically saying to the Jews, why were you worried about this guy being dangerous or seditious? He's clearly the not, not the dangerous man you thought he was. Yet, John the writer of the Gospel of John often has a double meaning behind his prose. So, as Pilate says, behold the man, John is drawing attention to the fact that Jesus is the man. What do I mean? Jesus is the man, the perfect man, the last Adam. When God created the first man, the first man failed miserably in the garden, plunging all of creation into chaos and destruction. But God promised he would send another man, the offspring of Adam and Eve, who would restore all things and crush the head of the serpent. Genesis 3.15 describes this in veiled form. God says to Adam and Eve, I will put enmity between you and the woman. Uh, and between your offspring and her offspring, actually God's speaking here to Satan, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So God promises that someday someone will come and bruise the head of the serpent, Satan. And so Israel waits for thousands and thousands of years, waiting for the serpent crusher, the offspring of Adam and Eve, the man to come and rescue them. And finally, after thousands of years, Jesus shows up as the last Adam, the perfect man. And according to the Apostle Paul, the last Adam is much better than the first Adam. The Apostle Paul makes this contrast multiple times in his letters. The first man ushered in the age of death. The last man ushers in the age of resurrection life, 1 Corinthians 15. The first man was a living being. The last man is a life-giving spirit, 1 Corinthians 15 again. The first man is from the earth, a man of dust, but the last man, the second man, is from heaven, 1 Corinthians 15, 47. The first man brought condemnation to the human race, but the last man brings justification to the human race, Romans 5, 16. The first man brought the reign of death, but the last man brings the reign of life, Romans 5, 17. The first man's disobedience was imputed to all, but the last man's righteousness is imputed to many, Romans 5, 19. The first man failed the test in the Garden of Eden, but the last man, Christ, passed the test in the Garden of Gethsemane. Adam brought the curse to all mankind, and Jesus became the curse for all mankind. Jesus is the last Adam, the perfect man, the prototype. He is the one they've all been waiting for. He is the quintessential man, the perfect man. Now, Many of you have heard me many times from this pulpit talk about Roger Federer. If you, don't, if you don't know who he is, shame on you. 
He used to be the greatest tennis player of all time. Used to be is the key phrase. Now, it, it just pains me to admit this. But now, Novak Djokovic, also known as Novax, because he didn't get vaccinated, Novak Djokovic is now the greatest tennis player of all time, and facts don't lie. He has the most Grand Slams, 24, amazing. Uh, he has the most weeks at number one. Uh, I think it's, how many weeks is it? It's a lot. Somewhere in my notes, 408 weeks. He's been ranked number one eight times. He has nearly every record now. And currently, even though he's way past retirement age, he's probably in the best shape. He has the best return of serve, probably the best serve. Uh, he's the most flexible. He has the best all-court game. He is, again, I hate to admit this, he is the greatest tennis player of all time. He is the quintessential tennis player. He is the prototype for all other tennis players. He's the best. He's nearly perfect at tennis. And again, he's way past retirement age, and he's still playing like a 21-year-old. It's amazing. It's amazing. Everyone looks to him now as the greatest tennis player of all time. He's the prototype. In a similar sense, Jesus Christ is the quintessential man the perfect man, the perfect image of God. He is the perfect prophet, priest, and king. Last week's sermon. He is the head of a new race of humanity redeemed by the blood of Christ. He succeeded everywhere. The first Adam and all of us failed. He's the perfect man. He is the man, the quintessential man. And here's the incredibly good news. Because of our mystical union with Christ, somehow supernaturally, even though we live now and he lived back then, if you're a Christian, you are united to Jesus Christ by faith in an unbreakable, insoluble union, which means wherever you go, he is right there with you. Whatever you face, he's with you. And because of that union with Christ, the perfect man, the quintessential man, the greatest man, the greatest human of all time. When God looks at you, he doesn't see your pride, your lust, your selfishness, your complaining, your grumbling. What he sees when he looks at you is he sees the righteousness of the perfect man. Jesus Christ. Wow. Jesus Christ is the perfect man, and that's an incredible blessing for you and I. But here's the question we all must answer. According to the Bible, everyone is represented by one of two Adams, the first Adam from the garden or the last Adam, Christ. All of us are in one of those Adams. And if you're in the first Adam, you will die and experience judgment for all eternity. But if you're in the last Adam, Christ, you're seen as perfect, righteous, forgiven, and a child of God. Which Adam represents you this morning? You must repent of your sins and trust in the last Adam to be represented by him. Otherwise, you're going to be in deep trouble, both now and for all eternity. So the humble king died. The perfect man died. And third, the sovereign son died. 
And again, the person of Christ affects the work of Christ. What makes Christ's death so important is who he was. The humble king, the perfect man, and third, the sovereign son. John 19, 7 to 11, the Jews answered him, we have a law. According to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. Now, my Muslim friends often say, Dave, the Bible never ever says that Jesus is God. (laughs) The reason why he was murdered is because he claimed to be God. And the Jews clearly understood this. So who are you going to trust? Muhammad, 600 years after Christ, or this account right here? Verse 8, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. (laughs) And he should have been. Verse 9, he entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Now, the reason why is because he came to earth to suffer and die, not defend himself. Verse 10, so Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Now here, once again, in the Gospel of John, we see an amazing example of compatibilism, God's sovereignty. Jesus is clearly clearly saying, Pilate, your authority over me comes from God. In other words, God gave you authority to have me arrested, tortured, and pretty soon crucified. Christ is saying to Pilate, God is sovereign over all things, even evil things. The Bible's clear. Somehow, God is sovereign over all things, yet we make real choices. We have free agency. We are not robots. And God's not the author of evil. Theologians call this compatibilism. God's sovereignty is compatible somehow with our free agency. And we see this very, very clearly in Peter's sermons in the book of Acts. Peter um, utters these amazing words, Acts 2.23, speaking to the Jews uh, a couple weeks later. uh, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Stop right there. The crucifixion of Jesus, the murder of Jesus, was according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And then Peter says, and you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So right here he's saying, God is sovereign, but you're going to be held accountable for the sin that you committed against the Christ. And then a few chapters later, again, Peter's preaching, Acts 4, 27 to 28, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do, speaking to God here, whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Clearly Peter is saying that God predestined, God determined, God had a plan to have his own son crucified, yet God is not the author of evil, and God will hold accountable someday these wicked murderers. How does that work? 
I don't know. But shouldn't you and I expect a profound level of mystery in theology? We're talking about the God who spoke the universe into existence out of nothing. What is nothing? Nothing. The thing that rocks think about, according to Aristotle. Nothing is no thing. You and I can't even imagine nothing. Okay, think about nothing right now. Try it. Try. You, you can't. You're probably thinking about maybe like a black color. That's something. God created the universe, billions of galaxies out of nothing. Of course, there should be a profound sense of mystery in theology. If we think that we can understand all of God's ways, we are incredibly arrogant. Now, this doctrine of compatibilism is so incredibly encouraging because it means that God controls every single detail of your life and he's using all the horrible things that happen to you and me somehow for good. How do I know? Because he used the crucifixion for good and he controlled that. Which raises the question, what hardship have you experienced recently? Demotion at work, some intense physical pain or suffering, loss of a loved one, maybe you've been cheated by a boss, maybe your spouse has left you, betrayed by a friend, maybe your car broke down, maybe your pipes froze in the cold weather two weeks ago, I don't know what happened to you. Life is full of pain. But if you're a Christian, God promises, he promises to work all things for your good and his glory. The sovereign son died and God controlled the whole thing. God promises to use all of our trials for our good and his glory, which is why Charles Spurgeon, the great 19th century Baptist, said this, I love this particular quote, the sovereignty of God, actually it's the next quote, I'm gonna skip that one. The sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which the Christian rests his head. i read that again. The sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which the Christian rests his head. When trials come, you can rest your head on the sovereignty of God. Are you gonna have all the answers in this life? Probably not. But someday I think we'll know what God was doing when all that pain and sorrow came our way. But in the meantime, we can trust God because the sovereign son died. That was part of his plan. And God used that for incredible good. So who died? The humble king died, the perfect man died, the sovereign son died, and fourth, the coming judge died. John 19, 12 to 13. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement in an Aramaic Gabbatha. So, so after Pilate finally capitulated under the pressure of the Jews, he prepared to re render judgment on Christ. Now I hope you catch the ripe irony in this particular passage. Here you have the sinful Pontius Pilate, the murderer, 
the corrupt governor of this region, rendering judgment on Jesus Christ, the sinless Son of God. This is like the kindergartner judging the principal or the filing clerk judging the CEO or the rapist judging a jury of his peers. Someday, these roles will be reversed. King Jesus will judge the world in righteousness, including Pontius Pilate and you and me. And how much more severe will his judgment be? And yes, there are degrees of sin and judgment we know from just a few verses back. John 19, 11, Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. God is just and is a good and righteous judge. There are degrees of reward and punishment. How much more severe will Christ's judgment be for you this morning? If you've heard the gospel and you reject it, Well, Dave, I'll follow Christ eventually when I'm done having fun. Just give me a little time to experience life. Later, I'll follow Jesus. There may not be a later. And again, if you've heard the gospel and you reject it, your judgment will be more severe, like Pontius Pilate's judgment. But there is really good news, and that brings us to the last point. Who died? The humble king died. The perfect man died, the sovereign son died, the coming judge died, and fifth, the Passover lamb died. Verses 14 to 16. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, behold your king. They cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus. Now back to verse 14. Why does John bring up the subject of the Passover? This was not a throwaway comment. This is a very important salvation historical event. This final rejection of Jesus took place at the sixth hour of Passover Eve. The very hour that the priests began to slaughter all of the Passover lambs in the temple. And this was no coincidence. This takes us back 1,500 years before this event, roughly, to the Passover in Egypt. And as many of you know, Israel was being sorely oppressed by the Egyptians. And so God raised up Moses, and God sent nine plagues to Egypt to judge them, and then came a tenth plague and this 10th plague was the worst of all. Because of this 10th plague, God sent the angel of death and every firstborn son would be killed unless, unless faithful Israelite fathers slaughtered a lamb and put the blood over their doorposts. Let me read about this in Exodus 12, 12 to 14. God says, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, 
I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast of the Lord throughout your generations. It's a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. And then skipping down to verse 22 of Exodus 12. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin, and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel, on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. In this story, whenever a faithful Israelite slaughtered a lamb and sprinkled that blood over his doorposts, when the angel of death came across the land of Egypt and saw that blood, the blood of a lamb, the angel of death would pass over that household and spare that child's life. Why did blood have to be shed? Why so much death? Why so much blood? Because the Bible is very, very clear. The penalty for sin is death. And for God to remain just and forgive us, something, someone has to die. And of course, this entire story points us forward to Christ, the perfect Passover lamb. On the cross, he suffered and died and shed his blood so that all those who trust in him never ever have to fear the wrath of God. When God sees that we are trusting in his son, his wrath passes over us and falls on Jesus. That means, my friends, if you are currently trusting Christ, no matter what you've done, you and I never, ever, ever in this life or the life to come have to fear the almighty, ferocious wrath of God. And yes, God is a God of righteous wrath. But if you're a Christian, Jesus took that wrath for you. And now as New Covenant Christians, we no longer celebrate the Passover as a feast. We now have a different feast. It's called the Lord's Supper. And that feast reminds us once again of the blood that was necessary for you and I to be forgiven and to avoid the wrath of God. The age of type and shadow are over. Christ has come. He has shed his blood. He is the Lamb of God. He broke his body. He shed his blood in our place to satisfy God's justice and display God's love. When a homeless person dies, few take notice. When the average citizen dies, maybe a few close friends stop and notice. When a civic leader dies, the whole city takes notice. When a king or a queen or a famous world leader dies, the whole world takes notice. Why? The identity of the person explains the significance of their death. The death of Jesus Christ was the most significant death in the history of the world. Why? When Jesus died, the humble king died, the perfect man died, the sovereign son died, the coming judge died, and the Passover lamb died. And all this, all this was for your eternal good and God's glory. Let's pray.